Beloved, as Christians, is the target for us to merely accept our lot in life? Among many other problems, to have kind of just a mere resignation rather than acceptance of the trials and tribulations God gives us can kill faith. You can become discouraged and apathetic with a moral paralysis and even at times seemingly perpetual frustration if we don't have our eye set on the true target. The late James Montgomery Boyce said several decades ago, or actually I think a few decades ago, 40, 30, 40 years ago, made this observation. He said, Dr. Boyce said, there's a conviction among many authors that history is a series of key moments in the otherwise undistinguished flow of human life. According to this view, Pastor Boyce noted, years may go by with little importance happening, but suddenly there's a crisis. A challenge will emerge, and the nature of history will be determined on how the leaders of the day react to that challenge. Again, he made that observation some decades ago. I would say that is true of the time in which we live in. Uh, at a global level, at some level, or in some way, the year 520 B.C., uh, this is the year, 20, the year of our Lord, 2022. And the year 520 B.C. was also such a year. It wasn't at the earth's service, at the world's perspective, at the global level, with the number of people that we see even now in our day, but it was far more important before the Lord. Beloved, please open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Uh, if you're not quite sure where it's at, go to the beginning of Matthew and go back maybe 20 pages or so, and you will find the book of Haggai. It is the third last of the 12 books that in our English canon, in our English order of the Old Testament, are called the Minor Prophets. Uh, Charles Feinberg, the great scholar, the great Jewish scholar who had been studying to become a rabbi when God saved him through faith in Jesus Christ, Charles Feinberg made this comment about the designation of these last 12 books of the Old Testament as the Minor Prophets. This is what Charles Feinberg said. One of the, and then in all caps, two words, one of the literary ineptitudes of the centuries is the popular name given to the last 12 books of the Old Testament, namely the Minor Prophets. Now, I myself am guilty. I've called them the Minor Prophets before. I will likely do that over the next four or five weeks. One thing we should completely understand is that if we do look at these last 12 books as the Minor Prophets, they are minor in length only compared to the more voluminous, longer letters and writings of the other prophets. They are absolutely not minor in importance, any of the 12, certainly this wonderful book of Haggai. Now, when we think of the 12 books, these 12 prophets of shorter length in writing, they're not given in a strict chronological sequence. However, these 12 are given in kind of a broad chronological sequence. The first six of the books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah, are basically the 9th and 8th century B.C. prophets. The next three books, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, are the pre-exilic prophets, the ones that wrote right before the Babylonian exile or the Babylonian captivity. Uh, we'll make mention of, though they're not included in these 12, both Ezekiel and Daniel did prophesy to the nation of Israel during the Babylonian captivity. And then that takes us to the final three books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, which are the three post-exilic prophets. They prophesied after Israel had returned to the land from the 70-year Babylonian exile. Haggai appears first among these post-exilic prophets, and in this case it is chronological because he was the first prophet to prophesy after release from the captivity. His contemporary Zechariah came along some two months after Haggai finished his prophetic ministry. Haggai prophesied in 520 BC for a period of about 15 weeks from late August, actually exactly from August 29th to December 18th, less than four months in duration. 
And I'll give you a personal kind of illustration. This will make meaning or will have some significance perhaps for you if you were here when I went through Ephesians. You may remember in the opening message to Ephesians, uh, I told about a man, John L. Mackey, who was, when he was in Scotland, a young lad of 14 years, he was walking through the hills and he sat down on one of the hills in Scotland and he started reading the book of Ephesians and God saved him. I quoted uh, Professor and Pastor Mackey several times. He was also one of the professors of Princeton Theological Seminary back, back when it actually was a legitimate uh, seminary. Now, the reason I say that is when the wonderful, I had the wonderful time with my family up in Flagstaff in between Christmas and New Year's, and there was one early morning, and Zach and Rachel and Aria were still sleeping. My other strapping son, Jaden, was still sleeping. I had my cup of coffee. I had my stack of commentaries on Haggai and the post-exilic prophets. I had my feet up. And I was looking at one commentary, and then my eyes glanced over to the next one in the stack, and I saw John L. Mackey, and I thought, hey, how about that? So in any event, I just wanted to tie together the last book that we went through Ephesians uh, with where we are at now. Now, back on Haggai, Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament after Obadiah. 38 verses in just two chapters. This morning, we're going to cover the entire first chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. The outline of the book is there are four words given to Haggai, four messages, four sermons, four prophetic words. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Chapter 2, the second word, verses 1 through 9. Then verses 10 through 19. And then finally, the fourth word is chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Beloved, listen to the word of God as I read our text here this morning, which is Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple so that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king." Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, 
What we have here in chapter 1 in this first prophetic word of Haggai, we have two sections. In, we have the section, first section, verses 1 through 11, which is the rebuke of a complacent people. And then 23 days later, we have the second section, verses 12 through 15, which is the repentance of a converted people. And beloved, what God would have for you and I here today is we're not in the nation of Israel. We're not building a literal, physical house of the Lord. We're not building the temple. But God would have each of us consider our ways. Look at what we're doing. Look at why we're doing it. Is it right? Is it good? And even more to the point, is it best? These are timeless lessons and applications and relevance from the always relevant, always timeless, always powerful word of God and the child of God. So let's look at this first section, the rebuke of a complacent people. First, we see the author and the audience in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king on the first day of the sixth month. So Darius the king, right there that tells us, if we're reading our Bible, on my Bible that I have right here on page 1235, it has Zephaniah chapter three, verse 20. Now when I turn the page to 12, page 1236, I have Haggai 1.1, but when we see Darius the king, it tells us that there's a vast historical switch that's taking place. We're now looking on the backside of the exile. And just to kind of remind ourselves about God's dealing with the nation of Israel, God called Abram, who was a pagan, out of the pagan land of Ur. God set his seal of promise, of covenant promise, on Abram told him that from him his seed would be blessed and would multiply and that Abram would be the one that he would become a nation of God's chosen people, the apple of his eye. Uh, The nation of Israel was taken into captivity in Egypt around 1876 B.C. They were there some 400 years, 430 years. In the year 1446 B.C., Moses led the nation of Israel out of their Egyptian captivity. We go forward, we see King David, who is a man after God's own heart. King David conquered the Jebusites, who had been occupying what we now know as Jerusalem. Uh, Solomon, his son, built the first temple in 946 B.C. The nation was divided in 931 B.C. Ten northern tribes split off and, and become the nation of Israel. And the two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, become the southern kingdom of Judah. Then the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, were taken into the Assyrian captivity. So we move from the Egyptian captivity and Egyptian exile to the Assyrian captivity and the Assyrian exile in 722 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, and actually even before we get there, the world empire passes from Assyria to Babylon, and then we go forward to the year 586 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar, who is a king of Babylon, comes in and destroys Jerusalem, destroys Solomon's temple, and takes the people into captivity which is the beginning of the fulfillment of a 70-year of Babylonian captivity that God had prophesied to the nation, especially through the prophet Jeremiah. So we move from the Egyptian exile captivity to the Assyrian to the Babylonian. Then at the world level, the Babylonian world empire passes and is taken over and conquered by the Medo-Persian empire. And in particular, a very significant king, a king named Cyrus, was the one who conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And then one year later, in 538 B.C., Cyrus, God who owns and moves the heart of the king in the same way he moves the channel of the river, moves and stirs the heart of the Persian king Cyrus to issue a decree that the nation of Israel can go back to the land that God had promised them and even rebuild the temple. And then two men, Zerubbabel and Joshua, lead about 50,000 Jewish men and women back to the promised land in 536 B.C. Uh, Cyrus, just a note on him, Cyrus was a very significant man. 
Herodotus, the historian, said Cyrus was, quote, in the kindness of his heart, always occupied with his subjects' well-being. Now, I say that because he's very significant. Cyrus' son, Cambyses, was a tyrant. He was only short-lived, but then after Cambyses, the next Medo-Persian king is this man named Darius, who was actually born to one of the satraps of Cambyses. Darius affirmed and endorsed and encouraged the decree that had been made by the predecessor of Cyrus. That takes us up to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month. And beloved, all that is a reminder that God is sovereign over all of history. He is the one that controls what takes place and with a view in particular to his people, to the nation of Israel, and then to you and me even this day. In the year, second year of Darius the king on the first day of the sixth month, It's interesting, the earlier prophetic books, when they were dated, were dated by the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah. Now that the nation of Israel is in the Persian Empire, it's dated by the Persian Empire king. Uh, Haggai and Ezekiel, the prophets Haggai and Ezekiel use numbers for the months in the second year of Darius. Uh, Zechariah, Nehemiah, and the author of Esther used the Babylonian names for the months. It's just an interesting difference, and it, it made me think of the fact that even though some of those Babylonian months had very pagan and pagan religion backing and meaning behind them, they were still used in the word of God. And precise dates are used at times. Precise dates are used, for example, right here by Haggai and also by Ezekiel. And that is one more good reminder that tells us that the Bible is historical. This is not a collection of pleasant platitudes that came merely from the musings of men. This was written by men with their language, with their vocabulary, out of their background and their history. And it is the word of God as the Holy Spirit superintended these authors with absolute historical perfection and precision. It was on that date, which we know to be August 29th, 520 B.C., that the word of the Lord, continuing verse 1, came by the prophet Haggai. A Haggai, Haggai is, this is actually the only person in the Old Testament with the name of Haggai. We'll come, for example, to Joshua, who is the high priest we read in our text. There are many Joshuas in the Old Testament. There's only one Haggai, and the name means my feast or my festival one. It comes from the Hebrew word hog, which is used, for example, in Leviticus 23, when God gives the nation instruction on the seven feasts that were given to the nation of Israel. That's the root word now meaning Haggai. It could mean that he was perhaps born on a feast day. What's more to the point here, though, is as we would put ourselves in the seat of the original audience, Haggai needs neither introduction nor identification for the audience. They know precisely who he is. Many of the other prophets they would identify. Even Zechariah is identified as the son of Edo. But Haggai needs no introduction. And there's only two other mentions of Haggai in the Old Testament other than the letter that was written by him. Both appear in Ezra and both show him to be in alliance and aligned with the other or the second post-exilic prophet, Zechariah. For example, Ezra 5.1, you'll read these words. When the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel. And then also in Ezra 6.14, same thing. We see Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, coupled together. And beloved, in the four or five weeks that we will spend in these two chapters, in these 38 verses, you will see that Haggai is a man of one message. He's very Elijah-like. He is forthright and uncompromising. Uh, One note, it's possible from chapter 2, verse 3, that Haggai was alive 
when the temple was destroyed in 586 BC, which would make him an old man at this point. And that even goes in with the fact that after Haggai has done his prophetic ministry for 15 weeks, three and a half months, and then when Zechariah comes along the scene, his contemporary Haggai basically just vanishes from the scene. I already mentioned that there are four prophetic words from God, and they're marked by what you see there. The word of the Lord came. The word of Yahweh came. And all four of Haggai's messages are precisely dated. This first word I mentioned before, August 29th, 520 B.C. The second word in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is October 17th, 520 B.C. And then the third and fourth words are December 18th. And what we have here, beloved, is for the first time in post-exilic Israel, the voice of the Lord is heard. And in fact, Haggai is the first prophet, the first message, the first voice of God, the first words that aren't the words of a mere man, but is the voice of God speaking through man, is heard in the promised land for the first time since the time of the prophet Jeremiah. I mentioned before, both Ezekiel and Daniel did prophesy to the nation during the Babylonian captivity, but this is the first time since Jeremiah, who was the weeping prophet for 55 years, prophesied to the people in the promised land. The long silence is broken, and the people of God hear the voice of God again in the land that God had promised to them. And though there may be the Egyptian captivity, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, there's the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there's the Bar Kokhba revolt, there's Suleiman the Magnificent and the Muslims that took place. Beloved, God is not done with the nation of Israel. And we know from Ephesians, Jews and Gentiles, we're together in one body in Christ, but God is not done with the nation of Israel. And it is kind of interesting when we think of how short, how brief this is, when we think that Haggai, as I mentioned, vanishes from the scene when Zechariah comes and has a much longer ministry and much longer writing. It's almost like Haggai is kind of like a Tychicus type of right-hand man. He's kind of a behind-the-scenes kind of man. But I love what I read in one of the commentaries that I read. The commentator said this, quote, in spite of the short duration of, this, of his ministry and the fact his book is the second smallest in the Old Testament, he may be considered one of the great figures in Israel. In a time of deep decline and discouragement, his single-minded preaching again gave the people of God new perspective on their relationship with God and on the promised blessings. In encouraging the people to rebuild the temple, Haggai gave them a new spiritual center without which they would have perished as the people of God in the vortex of history, end quote. That's the author. Now, also we see in verse 1, we see the audience, the immediate audience to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Uh, his interesting names, I don't think I've ever met a person, it's not one of the most popular baby names, Zerubbabel. It means literally the seed of Babylon or the shoot of Babylon. Zerubbabel is called Sheshbazar and the prince of Judah in Ezra 1.8. He was appointed by Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire, to be the governor of Judah. And then we also know that Zerubbabel was the grandson of King Jehoiakim. In other words, he's in the line of the Davidic dynasty. And Zerubbabel is mentioned seven times in Haggai. And the point that we see from this is that this Babylonian-born man, this Persian-appointed governor, Zerubbabel, is the representative of the Davidic line. Even though he's a governor, not a king, he is part of God's fulfillment to King David in 2 Samuel 7 that God would establish a throne through him. And he appears in the genealogy of uh, what is to come of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we look at the fourth word, chapter two, verses, well, I won't read it, we'll get to when we get there, but when we look at the fourth word in chapter two, verses 20 through 23, what we see there is Haggai is even telling Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, in a small way, you will do now what the coming king will do in a big way. 
And then even as we would turn the page in our English Bibles from Haggai to Zechariah, we see that one is coming ultimately who is like Zerubbabel, who will fulfill the promise that God has given. At the end of verse 1, we see the second leader to whom Haggai first addresses. And he says, And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, uh, Joshua is called Yeshua in Ezra 2 verse 2. The same root of Yahweh says, the same root from which we get the name Jesus. And he, we, basically he's the son of Jehozadak and his father Jehozadak was the high priest at the time of the Babylonian invasion in the nation of Israel and the destruction of the temple. So there's a continuity there. And this Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, is a descendant of Zadok. And he's reestablishing the priestly line, which God had also promised through, uh, from Aaron through uh, Eleazar in Numbers chapter 25. In Numbers chapter 25, verses 10 through 13, God lays out one of the five eternal covenants that he gave to the nation of Israel. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the priestly covenant are all eternal covenants that God established. The priestly is the least known of all of these. But again, all this is tying together for God's glory and the blessing of his people. And it is these two men, Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, that 16 years earlier from this prophecy from Haggai had led the 50,000 people out of Babylon back to the promised land. And what we have here, even in just this one verse, we have the three offices of the theocracy, the three offices of God's kingdom and reign over his people Israel, prophet, priest, and king in one verse, all of which, of course, are fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Well, that's the author and the audience. As we continue on, we now see the sin of complacency on the part of the people, and one of the dynamics is that the rebellion and the sin of the people when they have come back to the land, the rebellion and sin of the post-exilic nation is more subtle. It's not as obvious as the sins of the country before the Babylonian exile. The sins are more of omission rather than the sins of commission, rather than the overt idolatry that is seen in the other books. This is more covert complacency. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus says Yahweh Sitbaot. This is one of the titles of God. This is a title of God that evokes and brings out a military background, a military name of God. It means sending out a mighty army. And I'll give you one example, 1 Samuel 17, verse 45, when David, the ruddy youth, was standing before the giant Goliath. Uh, because David set his heart upon the Lord, we read 1 Samuel 17, 45, David said to the Philistine, namely Goliath, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. So this is one of the precious names of God that we see in the Old Testament. This Lord of hosts is used almost 300 times as a name or title of God in the Old Testament. It's used 97 times. Almost a third of all its usages are in the 12. And 91 of those 97 appearances appear all in the three post-exilic books. 14 times here in Haggai. The point is, God uses this name bringing out that he is the sovereign general, the sovereign commander, the sovereign God over all creation, over all might and armies for the remnant of people that have come back into the land. But... Thus says the Lord of hosts here in verse 2, this is a dispute, this is the beginning of the rebuke. This people says, and just stop there for a second, God doesn't say, my people says. He says, this people says. They are in the land, but they are far from God. This people says, the time has not come. 
even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. You see, the 50,000 had returned to the land. They had reinstated the feasts. They had actually even laid the foundation of the new temple. But then the work stopped. Ezra 4, verse 24, you read, Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So why did they stop? They initially stopped because of fierce opposition. From the neighboring tribes and the neighboring people group, they started to come in and they're saying, we don't want the nation of Israel to come back and reestablish their empire, especially the Samaritans were very instrumental in that opposition. So that was the beginning reason. But after that, the people began to become implacent. They began to become indifferent. So it was originally opposition from without, but that transmogrified, that morphed into indifference within. And what we see here as God goes forward is God doesn't jump on the excuse train. Oh, woe is me, this opposition. Rather, he rebukes them for their complacency, for their indifference. I think I've said from the front before, you can have results and you can have excuses. You cannot have both. That's why he says, this people, not my people. They're in the land, but far from God. And beloved, it's very possible, even today, to be geographically very near to religion while at the same time being spiritually very far from God. But what the people are saying in this dispute from the Lord is, the time has not come. So they're not saying no, they're saying not yet. Spurgeon said, quote, a man who wastes his time and his strength in sloth, laziness, offers himself to be a target for the devil who is a wonderfully good rifleman and will riddle the idler with his shots. In other words, idle men tempt the devil to tempt them. Beloved, procrastination has been called a thief of time. But in the Lord, procrastination is not merely a thief of time. It's also a thief of God's blessings for the son of God, for the daughter of God. And understand this, beloved, saying not today or excuse me, saying not yet today makes it much easier to say not yet tomorrow. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, verse 3. And one thing to note here, this, this formula of revelation, this, this some form of thus saith the Lord appears 29 times in the 38 verses of Haggai. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves, repeated address there, you yourselves for emphasis, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? This is a rhetorical question. God is not asking, God is not asking through Haggai to gather information. This is to stir the hearts of the people because they're content to live in their finely decorated house while worshiping in the ruin of the house of the Lord. You see, Cyrus' decree had basically given Judah a blank check to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel, called Sheshbazar, laid the foundations for the temple in Ezra 5.16. But the work had stopped, as I read before, and the temple still laid in ruins. And this is a metrics, this is an index. The ruined skeleton of the temple is an index, a metric of the heart. It's like a dead body decaying in Jerusalem and making everything contaminated. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, Haggai says, If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it will become unclean. Then, verse 14, Haggai answered and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So again, the ruined skeleton is a dead body that is polluting the rest of Israel because of their misplaced priorities. And the rebuilt, 
or excuse me, the uh, ruined temple, again, is a metric into their heart. Kind of like that little look of Lot's wife was an indication of her heart. That was a little thing. This ruined temple is a big thing. Both are an indication that something's not right with the heart. And beloved, making a practical application, do you want to know what you value the most? Look at your checkbook. Look at your calendar. You have time and money for that which you most care about. That is the metric. But what God does here, back in Haggai, he gives fatherly chastisement. Verse 5, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Literally, set your heart upon your ways. Give careful attention to your way. We'll see the same word, consider, with that rich meaning twice here in the first word. In verse 5 and verse 7, we'll see it again in chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, that is a primarily charge from God to the post-exilic nation and to you and to me as we would apply this word to our lives and hearts. And then in verse 6, he gives five pairs of poetic contrasts. He says, you have sown much but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes, like flour through a sieve, sowing so much and reaping so little. James Montgomery Boyce, again, had this choice statement. He said, quote, I don't know of any passage in the Bible that better describes the feverish yet ineffective activity of our own age. End quote. It's like a man running up an escalator two steps at a time, but it's going down faster than he's climbing. And the result is they're wretchedly unsatisfied, always longing for the next thing, always longing for what they don't have, not satisfied with what they do have. They're like sea anemones, just going along mindlessly reacting to whatever external stimuli comes their way. Like the man or the woman that says to themselves, you know, I own a device in my pocket that gives me access for, to the entirety of information known to man, and I use it to get in arguments with strangers, look at cats, or look at pictures of cats, and watch videos of people on another continent folding clothes. Beloved, misplaced priorities. Redeem the time. Conrad Muu said, and I love this quote, as long as you're, and I wish I could imitate his African accent, I can't, but I love it. Conrad Muu said, as long as you're playing hide and seek with repentance, forget about finding joy with God. That's the people there at the time. And beloved, understand this. God sends emptiness so that you'd awaken, so that we'd awaken from our idolatry and turn back to him. Psalm 106, verse 15, God gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. In verse 9, I'm skipping over verses 7 and 8. I'll come back to them in a moment. Verse 9, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Uh, the harvest is so poor and the grain so thin that the grain is blown away with the chaff. Same dynamic as the prophet Hosea wrote about in Hosea 8, verse 7. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Verse 9, continuing back here in Haggai 1. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth its produce. Uh, the dew in the promised land was very important to protect and preserve the ripening fruit, especially in the blistering heat months of August and September. And what we see here, beloved, is that the earth and the heavens obeys the voice of their maker, but his children here aren't, and so they reap what they've sown because of you. Now, 
In verse 11, in case we miss the sovereign hand of God behind the paucity of dew and produce, he says, and I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, and on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, on all the labor of your hands. Uh, grain, wine, and olive oil were the, stable, the staple crops of the promised land. The cattle suffered the fortune of men. Joel 1 verse 18, Joel another shorter duration prophet. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. And the situation was the people in the land, they were blind to the providential chastening hand of God. So all their self-centered efforts bring loss rather than gain. And I'll say this, if you, if you give yourself to the world and you're satisfied, friend, that is terrifying. That's an indication that you're not a believer and headed for hell. If you give yourself to the world and you just can't seem to be satisfied, beloved, thank the Lord. That's an indication that you are a believer headed for heaven. And the difference between the two is the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Well, continuing on, we go from the sin of complacency to the rebuke uh, of correction in verses 7 and 8. And this sermon of Haggai, you could call it a sermon made out of stone. That's actually the sermon title this morning. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Second appearance of that here in the first word. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. It's interesting, Solomon, when Solomon built his temple, the first temple, he used conscription conscription to build the temple. 1 Kings 5.13, King Solomon levied forced laborers from all of Israel. Haggai appeals for volunteer efforts. He says, consider, go, bring, rebuild, and then he gives the purpose, so that, God speaking, I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord, says Yahweh. Be glorified, kavod, a weightiness, the heaviness, the glory of the Lord. Exodus 40, verse 34. In the beginning worship in the tabernacle, then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Beloved, may we never forget the glory of the Lord is God's purpose at all times, in every circumstance, for every man, for every woman. God has many counsels. He has one purpose. This is the final goal, the apex, the zenith, the chief end, the prime directive, the terminus of all things. And it helps us understand that the real problem here is not the neglect of the building. The real problem here is the neglect of the glory of the Lord, the neglect of the satisfaction that comes from following God. So that is the rebuke of a complacent people. In verses 12 through 15, we move to the second section, which is the repentance of a converted people. Uh, this first of the four words of Haggai is the only one of the four that records the response of the people. And what we see here, beloved, like the phoenix rising from the ashes, out of the rubble comes repentance and a spiritual restoration of a remnant. The people repent and God rewards Verse 12, the people repent. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. Beloved, the people only rise as high as the leadership is willing to take them. With all the remnant of the people. This people that we read earlier becomes the remnant. In a picture of harmony and unity, uh, we see the word remnant also in verse 14 and in chapter 2, verse 2. If we understand God's good providential work in his nation and all the people of God, there's always a remnant. Though the night may be dark, though the journey, the road may be fearful, 
or fearsome or causing fear. There's always a remnant. Genesis 45, verse 7, God sent me, Joseph, to his brothers before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. The remnant is the faithful nucleus of God's people, the 7,000 that wouldn't bow the knee to Baal in the time of Elijah. Simeon, Elizabeth, Zacharias, Anna, Mary, Joseph at the birth of Christ. This is the true Israel of Romans 9 and the Israel of God of Galatians 6, the, uh, Galatians 6, the saved Israelites, the remnant. The remnant of the people, verse 12, obeyed the voice of God, excuse me, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. Literally, the Remnant of the people heard the voice of the Lord, Shema. Uh, we know, and, and that's that beautiful word, Shema, heard, means hear, understand, and obey. It has the, the notitia, the ascensus, and the fiducia of faith, the uh, understanding the word, of agreeing with the word, and then being faithful to the word and obeying the word. We know that the pre-exilic people of Israel in 2 Kings 17, verse 14, didn't listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who didn't believe in the Lord their God. But now, on this side of the exile, as God has brought a remnant out, the message to the remnant doesn't fall on deaf ears. This seed is planted on good soil. And the end of verse 12 the people showed reverence for the Lord. Literally, the people feared before the Lord. We'll see the same dynamic in Malachi. So Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. Malachi comes along the scene about 100 years later, about a century later in 420 B.C. Malachi 3.16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, <clears throat> and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Psalm 112 verse 1, praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Those are just two examples, beloved, of the remnant. So back here in Haggai, the people repent and God rewards. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, the Malak, Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. Malak, the Hebrew word means messenger, like it's translated here, herald. This is also the same Hebrew word that is translated as angel. Haggai is an earthly messenger of the Lord. The Malak, the herald, the messenger, communicates the message of the one who sent him and officially represents the one who sent him. But the message is this, I am with you, declares the Lord. I, the Lord of hosts, am with you. This is the relationship restored. This is God's merciful guiding presence throughout the scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you see those beautiful words, I am with you, that is representative of God's merciful guiding presence. And what we know from this, beloved, is the physical restoration of the building is not the end goal. Again, that is merely a metric, that's an index. It is the spiritual restoration of the people of God for the glory of God that is the end goal. I'll give you two illustrations. Uh, Jacob, in Genesis 28, 15, God says to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will, I'm not talking about Gilbert. I'm talking in the context of the promised land. Bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 1 Samuel 3.19. Samuel the prophet grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. And then here's Third illustration, let's make it the application. In the Great Commission, go therefore into the world, baptizing from every nation, making disciples, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, what's he say? I am with you to the end of the age. That's God's word to you and to me. Verse 14, Haggai 1. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Stirred up, roused, awakened, set in motion. They, by virtue of their repentance, move from being a stagnant people to a stirred people. But God is the one who does it. The same God that moved the heart of Cyrus, a pagan Persian king who at the human level was a very good man. The same God that stirred the heart of Cyrus the king now stirs the heart of the leaders of the people and all the people in unison. And beloved, what a gracious and generous God. He rewards the people for something that he himself has done. And they came and worked at the end of verse 14 on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, preached for 55 years, and there's no record of any Repentance of significance. Micah, one of the other shorter duration prophets, preached for 20 years before there was finally repentance. Haggai preaches, and 23 days later, all the people repent. He must have been a much better preacher. That's 100% joking. God is the one that holds the heart of man. Now, in conclusion, beloved, you may have heard Haggai preach before. I don't ask for a show of hands here. At times I am tempted, but, so don't raise your hand, but I'm wondering how many of you may have heard Haggai preach, perhaps at a church where they're doing a building campaign or a building program. I, I kind of shiver and shudder when I think of that. That is a misuse and a misapplication, this beautiful edifice that God has blessed us with here. This is not the temple that he's talking about here. What is the temple? Which we know from our Christian experience and especially from our time just coming out of Ephesians. At this time, what is the temple of the Lord? We are the temple of the Lord. You are the temple of the Lord. The church is the temple of God, brick by brick, piece by piece, stone by stone. So in the same way, consider your ways. Go, get, and build the temple of God. Not this building, but go and evangelize. Share the good news. Shed the love of Christ abroad in your community. The very same love that forgave you of your sin. Forgive others as well. Come alongside. Wipe the face of the AIDS patient. Come alongside to the poor. Go in the homeless ministry. Go into your workplace, your school. Armed with the good news of the forgiveness of sin that comes from Christ. Beloved, that is the message of Haggai to you and to me today. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your sovereignty. We thank you for your providence over all of human history. We praise you and thank you, Lord God, for the nation of Israel, for plucking Abram out of Ur. We praise you and thank you that though persecution has come fiercely long before you even came to earth, Lord Jesus, and continuing for two millennia afterwards as well, yet they still exist. And we praise you and thank you that in the body of Christ, in the New Testament temple of God, we have Jew and Gentile together on equal footing for your glory and for our eternal joy. And it is for your glory, for the praise of your name, Lord, that we pray and we now sing. Amen.